and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm uh, times 700. That's right. Um, <laughs> You're doing seven to- 700 times better than you were our first episode. Exactly. Yeah. It's been yeah. 700 weeks since we started uh, this podcast. And that's a true statement. Like yeah. it's, that's, we've been very careful making sure the number of episodes matches up with the number of weeks. So it has if been we, 700 if we, weeks. If we miss one, we double up the next one, which doesn't happen very often. doesn't happen anymore, it, but yeah. happened early on. Um, uh, and so uh, we're going to have fun celebrating 700 episodes, uh, but we'll get to that in a second. First, I want to have fun telling you and the listeners about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Today, Tyler, I was so uh, the famous uh, Angelino Scientologist musician Beck, um, apparently not, not content to just steal Beyonce's thunder by beating her out for the best, uh, album Grammy back in 2014 or 2015 has now jumped on the visual album train. Uh, and so I was watching the, uh, his visual album, uh, hyperspace, I think it's called, um, uh, on, uh, on, on YouTube, with my tweakedaudio.com earbuds in uh and it, it sounded great I'm, i haven't watched black is king yet but uh, uh he is, i'm sure he is putting he is putting together a special called beck is king yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um so far it just seems like beck is always trying to outdo beyonce for some reason <laughs> he's uh, some sort of <laughs> some sort of grudge um but uh sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds they're available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that already low low price and no shipping charges so please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Tyler? Yes. Let's get into it, shall we? Now, David, oh, you said ahead. we were you said we were going to have fun. I would pr- I like my fun to be polite and measured and apologetic. Um, okay. <laughs> can can we, I feel to. like we, I feel like we can achieve that today. Well, uh, so here's what we're doing. We are every seven, every 700 episodes. Uh, you know what? New tradition, every 700 episodes, um, no, every 50 episodes, uh, we, we like to have some favorite guests back to do just a sort of a loose, uh, discussion of whatever we want. And since we have, uh, the, I guess the only silver lining of the pandemic for Battleship Retention has been that we've been able to open up our guests, uh, guest spots to people outside of the Los Angeles area because we've been doing them over Zoom. So we figured, why not go well outside of Los Angeles? Why not go all the way to the Great White North and to yeah. uh, the, the the country that is uh, kicking our ass in uh, uh, coronavirus uh, uh, quelling and curve flattening, uh, and and uh, have a couple of uh, Canadian Canadian guests, Torontonian guests uh, specifically. So, welcome back to the show, uh, Nick Flanagan and Jeremy Woodcock. 
Hello. Thank you. Yes. We are not, I know it seems one way, but take it from me. I live in fear every day. And it is, <laughs> good. It is to, we're living in, in a giant city and the numbers are good. But uh, beyond the fact that it just, all, we've totally reopened uh, pretty much. And the kids are going back to school in oh, wow. the new year. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, in the school school year, and there are also men with chainsaws rampaging our beaches. Mm-hmm. So not everything. Although, may I say, as somebody who's known Nick for a long time, I feel like four years ago, if he'd said, "How are you, Nick?" you would have said, "I live in fear every day." <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> not necessarily. You said it to me when I was living in L.A., and yeah. you could have said it to me. Uh, you know, I feel like you might is, have buried the lead a bit there, Nick. I, you know, I try to stay on top of it with news, uh, although actually just today I discovered par- partially because someone was apparently using his account. I didn't know that Herman Cain had passed away and wow. uh, he was only 74 and and of uh, of COVID, which is uh, unfortunate. But uh, so I try to stay on top of things. But uh, I did not hear about uh, this uh, Canadian Texas chainsaw massacre. What is going on up there? Well, we have a beach. It's called Cherry Beach, and uh, we also have anti-mask protesters. Okay. And uh, the anti-mask yada, yada, protesters yada. like the <laughs> yada 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 uh, chainsaw guys with no shirt run ran into this rave on a beach with no masks. Uh, they were covered. These guys were covered in blood. Apparently, they'd gotten into some kind of an altercation. I don't know if it was with each other or other people. They'd ran and retrieved chainsaws from an unknown, as yet unknown location, ran onto Cherry Beach, cut the DJ booth in half of the anti-mask DJ, and threatened everyone around them with chainsaws. It's the most- Do you, do you think maybe the origin of the disagreement was whose chainsaw is better? Yeah. <laughs> One just watch like, this. <laughs> they were like, I love the game Splatterhouse more than you love the game Splatterhouse. <laughs> maybe Solomon style, they both wanted the DJ booth. So decided really but nobody spoke up, so they couldn't tell who actually owned it. Um, See, yeah. This is that because I wanted to address Tyler's uh, introduction that I feel like this whole uh, Canadian stereotype of everyone being very, very nice and polite really just is a very thin mask um, for <laughs> yeah. a, a, a country of phrasing. snowbound weirdos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We definitely um, have, like, first of all, exported some of the most um, vapid and uh, bewitching for some reason via YouTube uh, people, you know. Uh, I'm not going to name their names because we, this is not a political podcast, but I will say it can be. Okay. <laughs> Steven Crowder, Stefan Molina, Gavin oh. McInnes, uh, who, uh, Lauren Southern, Faith Goldie. These are very, for me, uh, troubling uh, personalities. And, uh, and uh, that's one of our exports. We have the uh, solid anti-mask group of people. And we have uh, the second uh like in command the minority government uh is called the bloc quebecois and they've done uh several kind of questionable things towards race like like voted against a lot of very simple bills and that and now they're trying to trigger an election uh because of um this scandal within the liberal government so it would be cool if in the middle of the pandemic we then had an election (laughs) 
I think that's so. Basically, we can't be smug about anything. Yeah, because we're doing. <laughs> well, we have a lot of things that totally mirror yours, including a possible election during the. Yeah. But you know what? Uh, the, what the dream that Canada has finally achieved right now is one thing they have that America doesn't have is all of the hockey. All of the yes. hockey is taking place in Canada. Right. Yeah. I have never seen Edmonton skyline on my television uh, <laughs> so often. But, um, uh, that's that's very exciting. All of the hockey and none of the baseball. The Blue Jays are not allowed to it play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All the hockey, which is a well-known droplet-free sport. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever heard of ice shaving getting in tooth, Yeah, or a tooth with droplets on it can end up <laughs> on somebody else. But uh, yeah, I feel for all my pals in the U.S. I know it's like it's really hard on millions of levels. And yeah, I, I do think that strangely, it maybe at the end of this, like hopefully at the end of this, politics will somehow be transcended. I'm really. I'm crossing my fingers for you guys because it affects us too. We're really stuck in all that too. So. Well, and it's also just in general, the, the larger, uh, just the, just the whole of humanity. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, so as I've mentioned, uh, I don't read anymore. I just listen to audiobooks um, just cause I can, it's like so many, like so many people who listen to our podcast, like on a commute or whatever it is, like, you feel like you're accomplishing something even as you're on the way to accomplish something else. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I recently finished listening to the audiobook of needful things and I've come to, and it's interesting because so many people said because of the pandemic that we are living in the stand and uh, I would say maybe we started there. We are now living in needful things. 100%. uh, Just the, 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 the way that this villain um, encourages like, or discourages any kind of conversation. It's, Oh, this, this guy slashed my tires. And then this other guy did this. And now we're just set against each other. And if we took any time at all to be curious about what this other person is saying or doing, we might be able to figure out that, Oh, we're, we're actively being pitted against each other so that we're not looking at the real uh, enemy or, you know, certainly not looking at anything, any kind of commonality. And it is one of those things where like, uh, it's something that I find not to get too heavy. I know that the point is it was not to get heavy or, or even political, but it is something that I, that I, <laughs> I find like to do these. Heavy things. <laughs> yeah. What, what have you done here? Uh, you sneaky Canadians. Um, I'm going to keep talking a wrestler about called the, <laughs> the discourse. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah. And so I do, it is something that, that I think about is just like, there's, there's, I'm certainly not saying anything new, but like there just really doesn't seem to be a lot of nuance or, or at least understanding in, in where other people are coming from, why they're, why they think the way they do, why they vote the way they do. Um, and, uh, it's exhausting, which is why I have mostly tried to check out of any kind of social media. But then after a while, I feel like I'm being a bad person for not, uh, not engaging um, with things. I, I will say Tyler, it's, uh, it's funny that you mentioned Herman Cain dying and only finding out that today because you wouldn't know it from his Twitter account. He's been tweeting. I know. <laughs> you know, since then. And, uh, wow. Yeah. I, and I don't know who that was. I don't know if it's uh, a relative or whatever it is. It does feel. 
Well, creepy, I guess, is the word. Sure. Um, well, the idea of a brand becomes very weird. If sure. This is somebody I have never seen in person, I will never see in person, then they're just, Twitter, Twitter continues to happen. It's from my point of view, how <laughs> I never knew it was him doing it before. And I don't know if doing it now, but it's, they're just yeah. sticking to that idea. Well, it's like it all started with when they were like Burger King would tweet at Wendy's or something <laughs> sure, and go, yeah. you know, try our ketchup. Yeah. It's way better than yours. <laughs> when, Wendy's, Wendy's slash my tires. Um, yeah. yeah. Like Oscar Meyer, you know, yeah. being like, I don't know, being like uh, uh, pig feet in hot dogs. <laughs> Here for it. <laughs> by the way i can't think of a better way of summing up twitter than the way jeremy just did that it happens <laughs> that it's just like this separate entity that is made up of all these things but sort of like sort of like the character of oogie boogie in uh, nightmare before christmas who's just really when you take off the the covering you realize he's just made up of millions of bugs uh that's kind of what twitter feels like it's its own independent entity but it's made up of all these different things twitter is just is Joe's apartment. <laughs> Man, what a horrible movie that was. <laughs> my, my late father once, I have a great memory of being with a couple of my friends uh, hanging out in our basement watching TV and my dad coming down at like 1230 and being like, you guys like fun movies, right? Let's watch Joe's apartment. <laughs> and then we just suddenly are watching Jerry O'Connell talk to cockroaches. I feel like that's such a dangerous question to be asked. Cause like, do you guys like fun movies? And you're like, yes, but first I'd like to hear your definition. Of that be. It is fun when it's fun when movie people, when like, uh, and I don't know if, I don't know if your, your dad was a movie guy. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. All right. That's good. Uh, because it is one of those things where, when people know that you like movies, but they themselves don't really know that much about movies. And so, right. But they're, they're God, God bless them. They're trying to connect, you know? And so it's like, Oh, Hey, I bought you this, uh, oh boy, like, Oh, I bought you this, uh, like a picture frame, but it looks like a clapboard, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, there's that wonderful story that uh, David and I have when we were uh, living in Chicago and uh, we were going to be moving out of our apartment and uh, a guy, a guy came in to show the apartment to somebody okay. and he, and, and I, I know I keep saying, I picture him as Norm Macdonald as uh, Burt Reynolds. I don't know why that is. I, I picture him smacking gum, but yeah, he was just looking at our movie shelves and like took a beat and just goes, Oh, you guys sure dig movies, huh? <laughs> it's like, well, um, I can't, I can't argue with you. I thought you were going to tell another story altogether from we, the, we lived together. Our second apartment in Chicago, when we were moving out, I, I threw a party. I can't remember if you were even there that, that night. It was like a moving out party slash yeah. it was like some of my other friends had just graduated. We had a big, and it turned into like a big rager of a party. And I had earlier that day, like knocked on our landlord's door who lived in the building. It was, it was a very cool, uh, guy. Um, mm. I mean, he was like a cool landlord to have. He wasn't yeah. like a hip, cool guy as the story will. But I like talked to him tonight. I was like, Hey, I just wanted to give you a heads up where I'm having people over tonight. And I was like, by the way, feel free to stop by if you want. Um, and he was like, Oh really? Okay. Um, and then, so like then <laughs> a couple hours in to this party of a bunch of just like trashed 20 year olds, you, you know, uh, like moshing in my living room, he walks in and he has, which 
had come out in theaters but was not a, a, out on disc yet. He had a bootleg of Attack of the Clones. And he was like, oh. I thought we could watch this. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks. Uh, I won't say his name. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, oh, thanks. that's not really the kind of uh, – party it is but uh it was like a, a sweet uh, kind of embarrassing but sweet moment and, and i he also was. want to reiterate he was a really good guy i really liked him. i mean it would have been was. better if he'd just come to the party and been like i've seen attack of the clones let me give you the cole's notes and then tell you which three scenes to watch. because i will tell you i have gotten through a lot of stressful moments watching like the good scenes from the second and third film you know, like okay. you really have, because every scene with Ian McDermott is really good. Of course. You know? And the Christopher Lee, uh, the, the fighting I like in it. So, mm-hmm. so, th- and, and then we're pretty much at the end of that, you know, it's just <laughs> yeah. like, it, it's just like fun watching, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of it him go to me it is oh and also the darth plagueis scene is the like one of the best <laughs> yeah yeah. Scene, yeah you know and and even like when hayden christensen goes to me in my view it is the jedi who are bad i've come to like that even <laughs> you know? so, so i like it because i can spend about 30 minutes and be very satisfied with star wars and, and not I, watch those movies. I, I think when it comes to star wars and the prequels in general i'm like tyler with politics and twitter it's just like it's happening over there i haven't seen the technical yeah. clone since tyler and i saw it in the theater together in <laughs> chicago in 2002 uh, I, it's, uh, I don't, uh, one of my new year's resolutions listeners know was in, in 2020 to not, which I guess I failed at by telling that story about our landlord, but to not be the person who brings up star Wars in the conversation. If a conversation turns towards star Wars, I, I can engage, but, uh, but, uh, uh, I'm not going to bring star Wars up anymore, which I failed at doing. Uh, I saw but, Ian uh, McDermott in a movie the other day. Oh. Um, dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Oh. And Ian McDermott makes me dizzy because when I saw the original Star Wars films, I thought he was, you know, 80 or whatever. He looks yeah. like he's... And, and now, well, and then late 80s, he looked much younger than that when I saw Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And then now he's doing the, like... I, I want to call it like the Estelle Getty thing of like you played a character so much older than yourself and then we're seeing yeah. you turn out to look like that as you actually <laughs> I I had an old uh like a book that my dad had and it was like put out by Entertainment Weekly and it was like the 100 best movie the 100 best dramas the 100 best comedies whatever it was but then they also had like uh, little features that had been in Entertainment Weekly over the years and one of them was like hey here are actors playing uh, older than themselves. And then here's the, here's them at the age that they eventually, so like here's Charlton Heston as Moses. And now here's Charlton Heston at this age. Uh, and as I was looking, I was like, this is maybe the most pointless uh, <laughs> little, little uh, insert. I mean, I guess it's mildly interesting, but in the end, it's just like, did they do they look better or worse than when they're in makeup? Yeah. It sounds you be fun the to judge. me. I want to. I want to see that. I know, I but you're still subscribed to Entertainment Weekly. I do subscribe. Watch, to watch Mojo. Media. Watch Mojo will provide you with many moments. Yes. Similar. I remember some to that. trivia or lists book once reading just like the top ten closest age gaps in you know people playing parents in movies, and that stuck. I think the closest one was Angela Lansbury and 
Lawrence Harvey and the yeah. I think they were I don't know which way she might have even been younger but they were like six months apart yeah wow that that I find a little bit interesting because it speaks More to what an actor what an actor is able to do but then also the way we perceive yeah things because like, like even when Angela Lansbury was young she seemed there's such a proper quality to her that she could absolutely play Lawrence Harvey's mother you know and Shelley Winters was sort of sure ballpark I think <laughs> yeah by the 70s you know at least and um yeah I feel like I've seen so many I don't so many good movies especially since COVID hit but definitely since I've talked to you guys um you know as soon as I got back to Toronto one of the first things I did was I went with my mom to uh the TIFF theater and uh we watched 2001 basically wow. for the first time for me in the, but presented properly, you know, so it was so cool with the intermission and the classical music and the beautiful and, uh, you know, print. And, uh, it's just like, I feel since then I've just been on such a great, like nice. watching good stuff. 2001 is one of those films, uh, just to jump in for a second, one of those films, like same with Lawrence of Arabia. I haven't seen either of these because I've been waiting for them to be playing at like, you mm. know, the light box or something where I, I could have rented it for years. And I always think, no, I need to see, it needs to come to the big screen for me to watch that. And it comes I've, to mind because one of the, sorry, the last documentary <laughs> thing I saw was the documentary film worker about uh, Leon Vitale, which I also <laughs> really recommend. It's so good. It's, yeah. it's interesting. Uh, I've seen Lawrence Arabia a couple of times on the big screen where they did observe the overture, the intermission, all that. And of course it's a long movie already, but, and by the time you're done, like four and a half hours have gone by on one movie but it's kind of invigorating. It is, it really is like that idea. It's like, it's a night at the movies uh, and it really yeah. feels like an event. Um, meanwhile, uh, it's interesting uh, teaching uh, now, teaching uh, various film courses in, in college. I realized that there are things that I, as a movie person take for granted that, and so I don't explain it to my students and they've never encountered it before. So for example, in one of my classes, we watched West Side Story. Well, that starts with an overture. Mm -hmm. And so I just watched, we just watched it from beginning to end and it has an intermission, I believe. And the overture starts with like uh, this very abstract, I don't know if it's Saul Bass or anything like that, but it certainly evokes that this abstract view of New York City as like, and there's just color that is kind of swirling and changing as the music plays. And it's a solid five minutes. And so we're just watching that. And then after afterwards, when we were discussing the movie, there was a guy who's, who said, and I don't fault him for this, but he, he said like, he goes, I don't know what that was. It doesn't make any sense to me. That seemed so strange and boring and weird. Like, what was that? And I said, and then I realized like, yeah, of and and also like the intermission. It didn't say intermission. It just goes to black, and then music plays. And so I was in the the office slash uh, booth. And so when that happened, I like ducked my head out and I said, "Hey guys, it's intermission. You've got like ten minutes." Um, and but afterwards, there during the discussion, I, I realized like, oh yeah, the idea. I mean, I, again, I can't fault them if you're not a, a film history person. You don't know what an overture is. You know, whereas 
you know, when, uh, when, um, Tarantino did his roadshow version of the hateful eight, like it had all that, it had an overture and an, intermi- an intermission and it was fun to engage in that, but that's not a thing that is done very uh, at all anymore, either one of them. And, uh, and I realized like, Oh yeah, there's, there are things that I, have taken for granted because not only am I a film person, but the vast majority of people that I talk to are also film people and would not look, would not think twice about, Oh, there's a still image on the screen and we're listening to music. This is the overture. Um, it was, it's been very educational on that, on that front, like what non-movie people, again, I don't mean to speak ill of them, but uh, what non-movie people are and are not aware of what they're cussing. Yeah. I think everybody should just, I think they've got to just make Criterion Channel, uh, like the website, free because we've had access to that basically since March. And the amount of great stuff I've seen has just been it, just so, so refreshing. It's been like Pasolini and then speaking of Knights of Kiberia, which he wrote the Roman dialogue for, which is an amazing thing to me too. And something I think would be a great... Um, a thing to adapt into modern filmmaking is when you write a movie, you know, and you're setting it in certain places, don't be afraid to get someone who understands what you're doing to actually write the dialogue and the dialect of where you're putting it. Even if you already have the story and, and stuff, you know, just to, just to cement how people talk, you know, because it, it adds realism and, uh, and, and um, yeah, Criterion, we, we just watched uh, my beautiful Laundrette, you know? Which oh is, yeah such a strange movie uh of its of the 1980s that people don't think about anymore but it's really ahead of its time it's tackling like 19 issues all at once like fascist national front stuff in england and indian immigrants the black market um a gay a gay affair between daniel day lewis and and the lead character and and uh he's daniel day lewis is not playing himself <laughs> and, and, he can't. He there is no there there is no him but in, in one of those super cuts of him doing his act all the different accents it's kind of amazing because he is doing like a north london accent perfectly but he's not even he's from like another part of london like he's just so <laughs> crazy good you know and very yeah. uh, um uh, not to get pruned, very good looking in this movie. Is uh, oh, uh, I mean, I'm yeah. I'm as I'm I'm as I'm, uh, I'm, I'm whatever whatever side of the Kinsey scale is is hetero. I'm on that side, but he's uh, uh, a very a, a very sexy man in that movie. His bone structure <laughs> is incredible, but and his hair he has like a vanilla ice look. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, just all these challenging. Uh, it, we watched Murder on the Orient Express, you know, which is such a funny seventies. Uh, almost like mad, mad, mad world, like yeah, I love it. you know, yeah, those kinds of movies, especially when it's, and I feel like it's a good director. It might, if you know, who it is, it's Sidney Lumet. You probably do, yeah, know yeah. That. but yeah. it's like that's not something I expected, and it's great going deeper into um, directors who are thought of as maybe not auteurs, but like masters of a sort, and just realizing that they have some workmanlike, but interesting like parts of their like filmography basically yeah it's it's so interesting uh i i love murder on the orange express for so many reasons but it's almost like when you know uh, uh it's a mad 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 world is made was made by stanley kramer within a few years of him also making judgment in nuremberg and then you look at <laughs> you look at like 
Oh, Murder on the Orange Express. That's wedged in between Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. What's what's he doing? And it's just like, uh, he's my, just enjoying working with these actors, I think. I mean, my favorite thing like that is right? not, a, not a, a director, but an actor. Um, and I was too young to really process this at the time, but Goodfellas and Home Alone came out like two and a half months <laughs> apart. <Yeah. laughs> uh, you couldn't have two more different roles. I've heard I people actually, say that they gave Joe Pesci, like that really factored into the Academy Award, like honestly, that they were like as much, it was as much to sh- recognize him in Home Alone. As I mean, he, he is a really good comic <laughs> actor. I don't know if you're being facetious, Jeremy, but... No, no, no. But, I've heard that. Yeah, that really impressed me. And yet it didn't work for Eddie Murphy with Norbit. The, no, the opposite Norbit, happened. Norbit didn't work. You Norbit heard the Brian Wilson, the Oscar, there's the story. You guys all like music. Do you know the Brian Wilson Norbit uh, story? Oh, no. Was he, was he the inspiration? <laughs> no. Brian oh. Wilson, you know, he's one of my favorite musicians of all time, but he's, you know, he's very nervous in interviews. Uh, understandably and so they're he'll he'll sort of follow the cue of his interviewer and they said do you ever what did you do when you were growing up you know was it all music he said oh i like to go to the movies you know saw these classic movies released in the 50s and 60s and they said do you still get to see movies nowadays he said no more when i was young i saw hundreds and hundreds and they say what's the last movie you saw and he says norbit and uh they say okay um of all the ones uh, back then, do you have, like, you know, have you seen hundreds and hundreds of movies? Do you have a favorite of all time? And he goes, yeah, Norbit. <laughs> just because I feel like he just, this yeah. is what the person, when he thought they wanted to hear. He lives in the moment. <laughs> yeah, he lives exactly. in the moment. Yeah, exactly. have you, has anyone seen Brian Wilson perform? No, I never have. No. Yeah. I oh, saw really? him. Jeremy, you did too? Yeah. Yeah, I saw him at, at, at uh, Danforth Music Hall not long oh, ago. that's a great space for that. And it was really interesting because that, and I've actually, I saw Daniel Johnson on his last tour too. And I, I definitely oh, think wow. those two are connected in terms of like magical uh, mm-hmm. uh, songwriting abilities at the very different, of course. But um, yeah. uh, they both had this thing where, you know, the presence is just right there, partly because of the, um, I don't want to call it a struggle, but you can really tell they're moment to moment people, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's really neat seeing it. Whereas, you know, Daniel Johnson, it was near the end of his life and he was, it was, it was actually probably a struggle physically as well. Uh, Brian Wilson really seemed like he was having a nice time, even when he wasn't like necessarily leading a song, you know, yeah. he was, it was, it was just pretty joyous. And, and, and uh, that's great. Go out and see him the next time he's in your town. Yeah. I feel you like know, with it, him, it's as much, uh, he, he is there and like, he has these amazing, he has a credible band and they're just playing the yeah. songs and sort of, he's there because he wrote it all and arranged it all originally and stuff. And however much he wants to sing or play that night, but he's just there front and center while they all perform it. That's you a know, fascinating it, story though, about seeing Daniel Johnston so close to, to the yeah. end of his, his life. I had a, a similar experience. My wife and I saw Vic Chestnut about three weeks before oh, he committed wow. suicide. Yeah. That would have been, that's quite a, that's quite a thing. I know someone who saw Tom Petty the night before he died too. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, Cause that was in LA. If you'll, you'll recall, they played uh, the Rose bowl. And I also, it was Daniel Johnson. They, they screened the film and uh, then he performed. And mm. uh, yeah, that was also in Los Angeles. Theaters. You know, it's, it's, this is kind of a dumb thing of mine that for a long time, I was never, I wasn't really interested in going to concerts. Like it was, and maybe it's this, uh, that there's an introverted part of me that I don't necessarily like to be out with like large groups of people. Um, 
but as time has gone on, like, and you go to enough really good ones and you see that like, yeah, this is definitely different. Like the person has stage presence. They can play to the crowd and they can, they can personalize things. And, you know, uh, and it also gives you when you're seeing someone that has been around for uh, a while, you come to really appreciate that. Like, how are you still able to muster up this level of energy? Uh, you know, uh, years ago, I was very, I was very thankful that uh, we in Chicago, Jen and I saw uh, Simon and Garfunkel uh, on their, on the old friends tour. And even though we were not in great seats, uh, you know, we were in the nosebleed of what, uh, what was the, what was the name of the place in Chicago, David, the, the, where they had hockey games. The United Um, Center. Yeah. 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 So they were there huge venue. And, and I realized that, that, you know, there was amplification, but like, during bridge over troubled waters, like art Garfunkel, like brings you to tears and he just, and he just like blows the the roof off of the place. And you're like, you are not a young man. And I just, and you know that like, I mean, vocals change. And if you are somebody who like belts it out like that, plus his, his voice always had this weird, it's powerful, but somehow, somehow kind of, high and almost like, like a choir it, boy it, kind of it sounds weak and strong at yeah. the same time yeah like there's a thinness there's almost Th- like yes. a, a brittleness yes. to it that yeah uh, yeah yeah and i saw him solo as well and simon solo that was like yeah interesting i've yeah and i've combined. seen paul simon as well and uh one thing that i find very endearing is that he clearly doesn't know what to do with his arms while he's singing and Not so he just like d- <laughs> so he just <laughs> does these crazy things and i love it i love i love that like the music is in him so much that he just can't help but move his arms. Um, but actually last night I went, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole watching. Um, oh, a YouTube. It, wait, what did I say? Did you say YouTube or U2? Oh, YouTube. No, I can't you stand. are famously not a U2 fan. I am not a U2 fan. One uh, of the no. other, one of the men there are like, you and my wife are two such different people. And yet the number of like weird things that you overlap on <laughs> always fascinates me. And I've been unsuccessful at converting either of you to U2 fandom. It's, you know what? I don't, I won't even say they're, I won't say they're bad or anything. It's just for whatever reason, just the way I find I find it incredibly bland and forgettable. Even when I hear the songs that everybody likes, it, I can say like, no, I understand that this, this works. Uh, I, it's stirring nothing in me. What but, about uh, that song? One love, one life, let's get together. <laughs> you know what? If he sang it, if he sang it exactly like that, I think I might be on board. Uh, but no, I was watching uh, a musician that I, that I've always liked is David Johansson. And I like him in every iteration. I like the New York Whoa. Dolls. I like his solo. I like, like his bus- Buster Poindexter. I like Buster. Yeah, wow. because because he was really like you. Can't, you came to realize just how powerful his voice was there as well. And then he he did his like uh, David Johansson and the Harry Smiths. And I just really like his sensibilities. And so I was watching like you know him doing some essentially like some of his Buster Poindexter songs, like in lounges in the last few years. And so, and his voice has gotten a little bit more brittle, but he can still do amazing things with it. And it's just that kind of thing where you're like, it's the kind of thing that a live performance can show you is just how it's not merely 
being a singer or a songwriter or making it sound good in the studio, like when you can, when you can really elicit like an emotional response from the audience just by your presence and ha- and what you give to the song itself as you're singing it, um, it's really something. And it makes me realize like, man, I'm, I've, I'm glad that I've gotten to see a lot of my favorite musicians yeah. uh, live, but I also realize like I, I've turned down a lot of stuff it, and I regret is- that. This is one of the things I've been, uh, the number of things I've been saying I'll do quote unquote, when this is all over, which who knows what that even means. But, uh, yeah, there, I've, I I love music, but I've often found reasons there'd be concerts and I'd be like, I'll have it on my calendar. Like I should go to this. And then the, like the day comes, the week comes and I'm like, ah, go to the movies or I'll go to dinner with my wife or like, I'll do something. And I, the the number of concerts that I haven't gone to that I'm regretting now that we can't go to concerts. Um, uh, I'm, there was a uh there was a death metal show vader and abysmal dawn played like uh, a week and a half uh before everything went into lockdown and i could have gone and like had gotten some death metal out of my system uh before before this pandemic that might have been therapeutic uh and so yeah that's one of the things um that i'm uh going to do when whenever we can go to concerts again i'm going to make more of a uh of an effort of going to concerts i'm also going to get tattoos i've decided I, oh, what, I, oh, that's fun. We can talk about that in the okay. in, uh, some other time. Yeah. Okay. I, I've been very lucky because uh, having been in bands, I would often get to play with other bands, which is awesome. That's part sure. of the deal. And so I got to see lots of great bands that way. But on top of that, always being a music fan, I would, especially when I was younger, I'd go to tons of concerts. Then I got a job ushering at Massey Hall. And wow. so I saw that I saw Art Garfunkel solo, Paul Simon mm-hmm. solo, David Byrne, uh, Neil Young twice. And uh, amazingly, I got to see Gordon Lightfoot. I don't know if, if this mm. is well known in the U.S., but Gordon Lightfoot basically had made Massey Hall literally his home practically since the 1970s. It, when he, at the height of his uh, success in the 70s, he would do 20 dates in a row at Massey Hall. Wow. Do like the an entire month. And then even as it went into the early to uh, late, you know, like 2007 or something, he would do three shows or something. So I would get, and he'd come every year. So I, I'd get to see him in various iterations, you know, and I'd see his voice becoming thinner and I'd see yeah. how he was making it work. And I'd see how his band was making it work. And it was so inspiring in the same way that, that you're kind of talking about with David Johansson. Tyler and and probably he did cover hot 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 at some point and he did mention the hot hot heat as well. <laughs> so thank you for all that laughter. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, and then I was reviewing shows, so I I really would probably be in the same position as the both of you as I have, especially as I get older. And Jeremy, maybe you're in the same because you're a pretty big music fan as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Uh, where we just go, oh, God, I don't have it in me to... There's so many variables when you go to a concert. Well, I stand sure. next to... I, I, I saw Ween and, like, a guy uh, was, like, whipping his long kind of curly hair around and, like, soaking me with hair water. Oh. You know? and, and, oh. and it just was a nightmare, you know? It didn't and, 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 like, that kind of thing or, or you know, just, like, a, anything, you know? Bad, like, jostling. But... I recently saw the Smashing Pumpkins and I didn't really, I wasn't that crazy about the Smashing Pumpkins, but after that show, I was just like, 
oh, I actually kind of love this match. Yeah, a live show can definitely turn you around on a you know? Yeah, I wish I could. They, they, I, I had a great example because I didn't go when they came through Los Angeles on the most recent tour. Uh, a friend of mine who was also not a big Pumpkins fan did go and, and loved it, said they had like no opening act and played for like two and a half hours. Um, uh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Which the one time I did see them, that's exactly what they did. Yeah. They were my first show ever at Massey Hall. Speaking of that, Nick, and I, I, it was my second concert ever. And I'd seen Sloan play these like little three minute, great catchy pop songs for two hours. And then smashing pumpkins. I swear played four songs the whole night and I didn't have yet have the, I was 13. I didn't have the vocabulary to understand that they would just, they'd play the part of the song I knew for a minute and then he would just walk around the stage soloing for 16 <laughs> minutes. And then yeah, he would the song. It's and a I, real peacock sometimes. He's forgetting it. Yeah. So wait, was Sloan was your first concert? First concert ever. Yeah. March 29th, 1997. Oh, wow. wow. Look at that. My first concert was uh, the specials when they reunited in, I want to say it was 96, maybe yeah. like yeah. fall of 96. That was the first time I ever went to a concert. I do not like where we are headed here. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to hear you guys' okay. first concerts. Nick? Uh, we don't, no, no, no. We're not ending with me on this one. <laughs> oh, okay, uh, because so yeah, my, my first concert and you know what? It wasn't bad, but it was essentially like my, my uh, youth group went to go see uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, who in the world of, of uh, Christian musicians, he's, one of the better ones as far as, uh, especially as far as his attitude uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, the openers were uh, the newsboys who, if you're familiar with the uh, God's not dead, you will be familiar with newsboys. Uh, God help us. But, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I saw it uh, and I, you know, it was, it was fine. Uh, Stephen Kurt Chapman, not a bad musician, but uh, at that time, I, I guess I was probably in, I was probably in middle school or high school, but I also had an older brother and parents who weren't particularly keen on listening to Christian music. So, you know, I was mostly listening to like on my mom, on my parents' side, like the Beatles and Sam Cooke. And then on my, on my brother's side, like nine inch nails and that sort of thing. And so, so I saw Stephen Curtis Chapman in like the mid nineties and then there was a really long gap. And then I think the next one I saw was social distortion in Chicago. This um, is amazing to me. Yeah. Because this is wonderful. <laughs> is, uh, I'm not being facetious. Is Stephen Curtis Chapman the one who wrote that song about Columbine? Who's the Christian? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I don't, uh, I don't know. I'm not surprised you, <laughs> there is one. Oh no. Cause there's the, 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 the story that I don't know that anyone can actually confirm if it's true or not, but that the Columbine killers asked a girl if she believed in God and she said yes. And then they shot her and some, by, all accounts, like, by all accounts that is not true. Okay. Um, but that and didn't apparently stop there's a real from, tears yeah. in heaven style, like sappy, uh, exploitative, exploitative Christian song about that. And I couldn't remember if that was who, who did that song. Uh, I think Eric not... Clapton did that one too. I think he just was trying to <laughs> jump on any time there was. Uh, you say you believed in me. <laughs> not that, not that I can see. Okay. Um, uh, well, I want to know what Nick's first concert ever was. Uh, it's kind of a hard one to, um, I'll try to contextualize it because it was like 
something called the grunge that stole Christmas. And I believe it was in 19, <laughs> the, the grunge <laughs> before Christmas. I guess there was a copyright issue or something. If they got too close to Seuss and <laughs> it was like, a, it was sponsored by the local alternative rock station, CFNY, which was very formative for me and, as a station. And uh, it, it, it was featuring like the cream of the crop of local bands, basically. So it's all people you probably uh, wouldn't know offhand, although there were likely like six members of Broken Social Scene involved in the various bands. Right. You know, it was like a lot of the stuff that got big in Toronto, you know, 10 years later had like uh, origins in the local scene 10 years earlier. And uh, so that was so exciting to me. And I viewed all of these local musicians as uh, rock stars, you know, because I was 13. And then like eight years later, I was working in a warehouse with like six members of like the band, very like six of the band's various members, you know, or I was in a band with people who, who were at the show. So, um, yeah, that was the first concert. And it started off like just seeing lots of indie rock, like Pavement and, um, you know, uh Sebado and then punk shows it was I, like yeah that was like so exciting going to all those concerts as a teenager because it was then it was like the height of um like being afraid at a concert if that makes any sense <laughs> and, and when you see a familiar face or someone's being nice to you it's like okay you're my friend now person at the concert you know who is not jostling me so so yeah that was that was cool i mean yeah. Uh, that reminds me of that being being afraid of concert. I remember ninety seeing Tool in ninety eight in uh in, in St. Louis at what was then called the Riverport Amphitheater, standing outside and running into uh, a friend, a guy I knew who who worked at the C D shop uh uh near me and in the middle of like, Oh hey, how's it going? Like good good to see you. I don't know, I full a cup a big cup full of ice just come smacks him right <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Variables. Now that's a jostle. uh okay so a couple things i should of course my mind should have gone to this it was not stephen curtis chapman it's the other one michael w smith um who who wrote a song called uh this is your time um i i when i was younger and part of youth groups and stuff i was familiar with michael w smith i remember offhand i remember only one or two of his songs uh but yeah it's well, this, uh, the reason I asked is because um, uh, this will put Nick's uh, great uh, Massey Hall stories to shame. Okay. I, for a summer, worked at the amphitheater at Six Flags St. Louis. Oh, and I, yeah. worked, I worked the spotlight for a Michael W. Smith concert. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I never worked a spotlight, man. Yeah. Oh, they, they didn't let me work the spotlight for the big acts uh, that came through, which were... Stephen uh, Curtis Chapman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the big ones we had that season were uh, Alice Cooper, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, Weird Al, which was awesome. And then the weirdest one was... Britney Spears, who like in between booking this show at Six Flags and performing the show at Six Flags, like became very, very famous. And it was so weird that she was playing an amusement park. But uh, uh, what I can tell you is that without earning it, the success went to her roadies heads because they were (laughs) fucking dicks. (laughs) With the spotlight, how much would a Michael W. Smith move around during a show? 
Uh, it was it was an easy job. Um, but speaking of moving on, you're uh, reminding me of one of the other great uh, uh, talk about not being a fan of someone and seeing them live. I've now since seen him live like on purpose. But uh, one of the best shows I saw that summer working at Six Flags was Rick Springfield, who like yeah, I, I, one hit wonder or whatever. But the dude is a showman. Like I can see him being so able much to, fun to uh, working working a crowd. He seems like the type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I've and I've since seen him uh, a couple years ago here at the Greek Theater uh in in los angeles uh yeah definitely see rick springfield live if you get the chance it's fun i think uh oh i I was just gonna say i think that people who have like one well-known hit sometimes you know can be just so concerned with retaining interest that they Mm -hmm. can be better live acts or at least work hard on their live acts you know like and also i wonder I wonder, um, and this is just complete uh, speculation on my part, if you are a one-hit wonder, well, the vast majority of people know you for that one thing, obviously, but if people are coming to your concert, it seems like a fair assumption that they might be aware of your, the, more of that, uh, more of, of your, of your uh, catalog, and they might, exactly, yeah, <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> that's interesting, if, if, uh, if a musician referred to his songs as wonders, uh, that's, that's someone I would definitely want to see, but I could see it being like, you know, it being a very eager and excited crowd uh, and, and the musician just sort of feeding off of that. But I went, I think, I think some bands should uh, put that to the test. I think maybe disturbed plays down with the sickness first and sees who sticks around. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Or they just do like a jazz fusion version of it. uh, The last 20 minutes after that. I saw Paul Anka also at Massey hall and he played Diana like, five times including <laughs> including at one point he did like a little joke where he was like viagra oh boy very funny uh, stuff and, uh, and then he went the guys need shirts yeah he's got, he's got shirts <laughs> what is the is that the same i i get my my band leaders mixed up is that the same one that uh i i became familiar with this particular one the guys get shirts i knew because of course jimmy pardo mentions it all the time but i think it was uh dana gould who mentioned that uh the guy says he goes uh we'll take you as far i forget let's say it's cleveland it's like we'll take you as far as cleveland yeah. and you got it that's that's <laughs> buddy that's buddy rich that's buddy rich okay okay yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah. The Buddy Rich ones are 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 so great. Uh, like the um, uh, what is he, he talks about? Uh, if uh, his horn player is vamping, he's like, and I cut off the motherfucking microphones. I'll cut the motherfuckers off, and then we'll see how you do up there without all the assistance. <laughs> Such syncopation, even when he's speaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did want to mention. Um, so I will say the w- going to the concerts that I have, I probably, w- I, I undoubtedly wouldn't have seen most of them if not for being married to Jen, who really does enjoy seeing live music. But uh, there was one that I initiated because she was a fan. So growing up uh, around Christmas time, her mom would turn on, um, we're going to, I don't want to make fun of anyone here. So, but she would turn on Mannheim Steamroller who had all kinds of like Christmas hits and stuff. And so, uh, so Jen, even though I wouldn't, even though she wouldn't probably describe herself as a fan, like Christmas for her meant that. So like if we're decorating for Christmas, she'll sometimes turn on like the Mannheim or Chris, uh, Mannheim Steamroller uh, Christmas album. 
and so I saw that, oh, they're, they're coming to, you know, the, uh, a venue here around Christmas, like, let's, let's go. And so I, I, I booked the tickets. I was super excited. And then, but we also was just like, I don't know what to wear. I don't know how full this is going to be. So like we both kind of dressed up and then we, and then, and then we went and saw that like, it was full of unsurprisingly, it was full of people about Jen's mom's age uh, who were just like wearing like sweatpants and stuff. And I was like, okay, so this is not the event that we thought it was going to be uh, for some people. It's just a, a delightful night out for them. And so, and yeah. you know, it was, it was fun uh, to, to see their, their, there's a theatricality to, to them, but uh, not my, not my cup of tea. There are several bands like this. I feel like, Mannheim Steamroller might be at the top of the list of not the band I would imagine just from hearing the name. I feel like Guar <laughs> might be what I expected to hear from Ramstein. Yeah. Oh, I'd see Ramstein. I mean, at this yeah. point, I'd see almost any concert except for the way that they're offered right now. But I mean, if it was yeah. a normal way, I'd, and someone was like, oh, totally. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I mentioned uh, a different band mentioned this on. A recent podcast i'm trying not to get my hopes up when i see like tours announced for 2021 or whatever yeah. but uh romstein are playing the night before my birthday uh here in in los angeles and i feel like if we are back uh it's like two nights in a row the se- my birthday is the september 19th the 17th is gojira and deftones the 18th is romstein like i feel like i could that could be my like uh uh re-embracing of concerts big birthday weekend uh, Wait, like this my- this year no, no, no. 2021. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah, my, no, girl, my, girlfriend, yeah. my girlfriend bought me for my birthday, um, but it was a little before my birthday, but it was for my birthday. It was um, for uh, September Pet Shop Boys and Joy Division ah. hmm. uh, tickets for like, they were together. And then obviously this happened and we were just like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, and um, if we never return to the stand-up stage, um, I, there's a joke that I've wanted to tell on stage for a while and I never have. And it's just called Ramstein, Ramstein, uh, giving directions. And <laughs> it's just, uh, do, do East, do East and make a right. At the end. I don't know how I'll tell it, but I may never get to tell it. Yeah. Jeremy, I, you and you and I are, uh, I don't know. I feel like we're both the type of people who are kind of like, Oh, there's no stand up. Like you're saying stand ups back, but. It's not actually. there exactly there is stand up and i although i feel it yeah if i knew if i went out right away which i wouldn't do but i felt like i would i feel like part of part of what i'm doing on stage is having people watch an enjoyably a very nervous man and i feel like i couldn't convincingly portray that if i just went out the first day anybody was allowed back on stage. <laughs> not actually afraid to be here this is all. also you know i think a lot of these shows are outdoors and a lot of my least favorite shows have been outdoors yeah, it just disappears into the air so uh it, it presents a challenge and it's uh it's definitely one of the worst things no it's not one of the worst things about this who am i kidding the worst thing is the mass death and the economic uncertainty uh the not being able to do stand-up feels like i'm doing the world a favor and that it doesn't (laughs) matter ultimately (laughs) that i'm letting people who literally treat it like a drug you know get their fix and not bumping you know with my big uh big time name you know (laughs) You know, it, this actually does bring up a, a question. Um, this is something that, that listeners have asked, um, which is, 
you know, movies that come out in the, in the near future uh, that are produced, like, are they going to, is it just going to be like, okay, back to business or will there be movies made specifically about, uh, there will be plenty made about the pandemic undoubtedly, but will there be movies made that just take place during the pandemic, but they're not official, officially about it. But like you have characters who you know, it could just be like a kitchen sink drama, but when they are out at the supermarket, they're wearing masks and stuff like that. So I was curious, like when the time, you know, when the time comes and you guys are like back in the swing of things, does, are you planning on just like going back and, and just doing like the, your, your tried and true material? Or do you feel like somehow that is not having your finger on the pulse? Do you feel like people are going to want material about all of this craziness? Well, I definitely think I need to, I have a show next Friday, actually not mm. a show, but like a virtual show at the nowhere comedy club with like Chris Fairbanks and like mm. good comedians. So I, you know, I'm not normally if I've done sort of a comedy show on zoom, it's really just been chatting with whoever is the host. Yeah. And I don't think this show is going to be set up like that. And I don't feel like doing any of my old material and I haven't written any new material. So uh, I'm going to have to figure something out in the next seven days. And uh, I think it's quite doable because, you know, sometimes when you write spontaneously, especially in such a strange environment, like virtual comedy, it's probably not going to matter if I'm doing something. I'd rather have that spontaneity and excitement about the work uh, than try to replicate that, you know, um, in a new space. Uh, but, but yeah, it's really hard to, I was kind of like going in my own direction anyway. I mean, I always have, and I really don't know what it's going to look like after all this. And I do think it's going to be, I do think it's going to be different. I very much wondered that with movies and TV. Um, I don't know. I I feel like my thing doing stand up, I might just treat it like the elephant in the room and like the only thing we don't talk, like this sort of joke, like backing into the joke, like, look, we've all had things in common before, but over the last year we've, you know, we've all just been focused on one thing and that's David Allen Greer. And then just act as if we all <laughs> yeah. have been David Allen Greer was the story of the past year. But yeah, really, no, I mean, uh, COVID-19, the disease, but I'm saying David sure. Allen. I, I definitely think we're not seeing the end of not talking about COVID. <laughs> <laughs> like, not talking like, about it for years. I mean, every comedian talking about this situation on like a bill, you know, of eight people would just be like, uh, you know, uh, torturous it would be like uh, uh, it might as well be uh, I have nowhere to go with this I mind you I forgot to, about I, I was like anything I could improvise would be like just like harsh <laughs> harsh for the sake of shock so I'm just going to seem like yeah. for a moment yeah well but, when you're saying about a full bill I was thinking oh yeah maybe sometimes I do feel my feel sometimes like you're doing people a favor if everybody is speaking about the same topic and there are comedians who are not like you and you feel like there really was not much to enjoy in that aggressive, mildly <laughs> hateful take on it. Then you'd be like, maybe I will talk about this and show that. It, that it's <laughs> well, no, I, I, I think it's good to talk about things again. It's just kind of like this whole idea of presence or whatever, but it's like, uh, you just, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to, I just have to dig into what I want to hear sometimes. And it's like, mm. unless it's really good, I would just rather hear about, who you are and then what relates from, well, uh, um, yeah. from the audience member point of view. The one thing that uh, 
uh, sometimes roll my eyes out. Eyes out. Imagine a comedy night, you know, like you're saying, eight people on the bill, and there's someone in the front row is wearing a weird shirt. <laughs> and all the comedians are clearly just hanging out in the green room, not watching each other's sets. And so everyone says something about the weird shirt sure. uh, the, yeah. that gets a, that gets a little bit old. Is maybe this they, a maybe they personal are experience? <laughs> no, I'm not of being the person in the weird shirt. I was at the most recent one. Uh, there's a biweekly comedy show um, in Los Angeles uh, called Good Looks. I hope it comes back when this is over because it's a great show. Is that twice a week um, or every two weeks, David? Uh, it's every two weeks. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't say semi-weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, uh, or maybe I should have said something weekly. I can never keep that straight. <laughs> I don't um, but there's a weekly like, spelled W E A K. Okay. Sorry. But there's regularly at this show, there's a, there's a kid who's like 12 or 13. Who's just like a budding, like comedy mm. nut, which is great. And, and goes to like, his dad brings him to the show and not just multiple times a night, but multiple shows in a row. People who don't know this kid's always here are, they're just constantly right. riffing on the fact that there's a 12 year old boy in the audience. Uh, that, that gets a little, yeah. I mean, really. I, I remember there was a show where a woman who actually wound up doing stand up who has uh, hearing impaired, like uh, a guy was, it was at the last Sabbath shows that I was part of. And uh, someone was signing the uh, jokes to her as they were going on. And, and it was one of those things where it was like, really cool there's that's a great thing but also very hard not to comment on you know i mean i think it's just like a fine line between you know if even if you're there watching everybody react you know instead of watching everyone react to the shirt guy you can can still riff on it riff on it i mean riffing is dead let's be let's be honest you can you, you can still work with it just like don't as long as it's different somehow and or dismissive i always kind of like it when people have that like throwaway thing you know where they just kind of go yeah everyone's talking about you i know i see you you know and then they just yeah, move yeah, on yeah like like acknowledge yeah the key there as david said is like having paid attention to the rest of the show <laughs> so I'll, I'll 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 probably just start my set by being like does the inside of anyone's nose hurt does anyone have had the feeling like a coat hanger was put up their nose? If nobody says anything, I'm getting out of the area. Yeah. You know. It's, you know, it is interesting. Um, I often think, so I, I've had a, a couple like friends or, and sometimes listeners reach out and ask, and it's, it's, very flattering when they do, but they say like, Hey, I was thinking of starting a podcast. Like, do you have any advice? And it's just like, well, first off, just cause I've been doing this a long time doesn't mean <laughs> that I have my finger on the pulse of it or anything like that. And so certainly any, uh, any advice I give uh, should be taken with a grain of salt. But one of the things that I say is like, okay, well, do you want to do this? And like, is it something you're really passionate about and you just feel like you would enjoy it? Uh, Like, do you expect to get an audience? Is that like a big hope for you? And then also like, do you feel like you have a, a even vaguely different take than what, like there are literally millions of podcasts out there. Do you, what do you think is special about yours? And I say this by the way, as like, I realize I'm part of a, a, a duo of, white guys with glasses and beards and there are a lot of us out there and we're talking about movies. Can you believe it? Mm -hmm. Um, But I also am willing to say that we grandfathered ourselves in. So, um, (laughs) but at the same time, so I do think that 
you know, a person having passion for whatever it is they're doing. Like, you know, if someone wants, if a, if a comedian wants to talk about COVID, then by all means that then go ahead. If they feel like they have a unique take on it, or if they feel like they just, it's part of their own sort of comedic therapy. But at the same time, like there's a guy, uh, I won't say his name cause it's kind of mean, but he has like an, an online like news show in which he just is so flabbergasted about uh, what Trump is doing. And like, and his, his character is kind of sort of like a mix between like Lewis black and Jimmy Dore, And it's just like, okay. So you're, you're sitting behind a desk in a suit with like a, a loose tie. And you just seem so, so angry about everything that's going on and trying to point out the absurdity of it. I think it's been done, man. Like, I'm sorry to say, uh, and, and if, if this is just sort of you, your own like therapy, like you need to do something, I understand that. But at the same time, I feel like the amount of time and effort that would go into that, cause it actually does require like video production. Um, I just feel like what's, I don't know, what's, what's even the point uh, well, of it at that right? point? Like, what was that? Well, I, it's just that this era is so strange because uh, YouTube and, and, even the ease of making a film theoretically should have created a more unique situation, but it's like when there is something that works in terms of pioneering stuff or, or starting a trend, it's like people realize that works and that's what they do. You know, they just start shifting their passions into, um, into what they think will work and make them money. I mean, it is, it is a sad sort of byproduct. I think of the sort of passion and money intermingling, especially in in creative or, or, or even more so maybe critical work, you know, like, like I, I I think about, I was talking to my mom, she was talking about Garson Kanan, you know, the, uh, Mm -hmm. the theater critic. uh, I think he was a film critic in, in her, I think he wrote, some plays too born yesterday yeah Yeah. and um how his writing was so was so good and and you know you saw that in leslie halliwell and even pauline kale and andrew saris and it's like now film writing has been it's it's different especially Mm -hmm. it's very i would say probably youtube is one of the big places for it and, and podcasts and and that and that's a completely different um and a lot more, I don't want to use the word collaborative, but it's really like pally, you know, like mm-hmm. way of talking about movies, which is a hard thing to do with analysis. And it's really Easter egg oriented as well. I feel. Yeah. Did you notice this? Did you notice this? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I think the, the day came and David, I don't know if you kind of felt the same where you, we realized like, or at least I realized like, okay, well, Battleship Retention as a website, as a podcast is only going to become so big, you know, we don't have a crazy kind of hook and we're not super interested in trying to develop one. And so like, this is not going to be the thing that, I mean, we do do a fair amount of maritime puns. I feel like that's kind of our hook. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, and admittedly everybody that uh, subscribes to the Patreon, it's like, I'm here for the maritime puns. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and actually, like, once I realized, like, okay, well, this is the, this, the thing that I will do as a way of being 
uh, of staying tuned into film and being able to talk with with my friend and maybe uh, get to know some some other people uh, that I would never that I would not know otherwise like the two of you and yeah. it was actually quite freeing um, mm. because then it's like I don't have to do the thing that gets clicks I'm going to do the thing that I think is most interesting for me for David and ideally for our listeners and. It's, it's how well other people are talking about like, hey, here's all the things wrong with this. Dave and I are saying like, what is a movie? You know, <laughs> the fact that we arrived there in the 600 episode range yeah. speaks to just how, you know, how deep we're willing to go. And I feel and like how not uh, <laughs> not willing we are to play the <laughs> Easter egg. Uh, Boy, that's which for seems sure. like some kind of secret to happiness on some deep level. Well, just maybe. Yeah. A, I, yeah, I find this tremendously. Maybe it's because it's episode 700. And I'm feeling a little bit navel gazing but but i do think was that, that a maritime pun right there, <laughs> there <you go. laughs> oh I, uh, I feel like we need to end on that come on but, but yeah the slogan of your podcast maritime puns see <laughs> <laughs> see this is why you guys make the big bucks and, and get and get ripped off by snl or whatever it yeah. is i make two thousand uh, dollars a month from the government which is ending <laughs> this year the big bucks <laughs> that it's one thousand usd and you guys somehow had a thing where you made forty five thousand dollars in two months with unemployment <laughs> and it's still it's hard because of the health care thing love you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I, I guess all that is to say, like, I feel I, I guess I kind of feel bad when I say, like, why would somebody do this and that or the other thing? Um, because I guess when it comes right down to it, like, as long as somebody is expressing what they actually think and what they actually want to do, then like and, and being OK with like not fine, whether it be a comedian or a filmmaker or a podcast or whatever, and just recognizing like this might not be the thing that gets clicks if it does good for you. But if it doesn't, that's all right. But if you're doing things solely to get them. Mm -hmm. I feel like either you either you burn out or you just change into something that you that is no use to anybody. Well, I've, I've been really into uh, retro video game YouTube um, mm. for a while now. And because like, again, when I moved back here, one of the last things I did in L.A. was actually like I sold some of my Sega Saturn games just to have a little bit of money because they sell for high prices. And. I gave away my Sega Saturn. And then as soon as I came to Toronto, I just started like collecting systems. Like I have a Dreamcast hmm. and all the 16-bit stuff. Do you have and a TurboGrafx-16 with Bonk's Adventure? No, but I might get the TurboGrafx Mini at some point. Cause okay. I, I, am ex I was never a TurboGrafx person, but they do have really good games. And I've been playing the an emulator. Um, okay. but, but I own all the games, of course. And... <laughs> Even though that's of course. Again, again, I'm just trying to cover my ass. But uh, uh, the, what, the YouTubers, the really good ones, who I will name right now, my favorites are like Sega Lord X, uh, who is this guy in his mid-40s who puts, it seems like, between parenting and and doing his, and being a husband, he is just making Sega history videos and like really working around the clock doing this. Like he'll put out like three videos a week. And I, he grew from a very small channel to a pretty dedicated fan base. Yeah. Guy, and then this guy, Kim justice, who's British, actually, I guess uh, it's a woman now. Um, she's, uh, you see what I'm saying? Transition yeah. within the period of time. And Kim has this wonderful speaking voice and is passionate about like Vic 
20 and Spectrum and all these like mm. British uh, things, Mega Drive games. And then, uh, and, and seeing that passion in, in like video game people, especially does give me an excitement. And it almost does remind me of when like nerd culture or whatever you'd call it was first starting to bubble. And it coincided perfectly with like a lot of the things I grew up liking and uh, that the enthusiasm generally felt real. And as it went on, it felt like either the enthusiasm was the, maybe the love was real, but the passion might not be there anymore, you know, and it became this kind of business thing. And I just think it's going to be interesting. It's all going to be interesting seeing what the hell is next and movie wise, especially because I would assume movies are being made by families bubbling together <laughs> you know like like I, I i don't know what's happening i bought like a stop mo- or I, we found a stop motion kit on the street you know and and i wonder if other people are doing like stop motion stuff and and wow. uh, i mean what do you what do you guys think as as the resident experts <laughs> yeah it's well I'm very, I, no. <laughs> oh. oh you were uh, included in there jeremy uh it's hard i mean it's it's hard to say when it comes to the industry i mean i'm i'm reluctant to to comment because you know we 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 stand on the outside me probably more than david because he's uh sort of kind of in the industry we don't talk about we don't talk about my job but yeah um but uh so I, I don't usually know. I do. I, I know that the film industry is extremely resilient, but I also know that like from a distribution standpoint, I think that's, that's where this, that's the biggest impact that this is going to have. And we are headed that way anyway, like this, this, how big is streaming going to get and how much of an impact is it going to have on theater going and, and that sort of thing. And that was all that, that was always going to happen. I think this hastened it. Um, I'm really interested, like, and the other thing is we're not going to know what the difference is going to be because there's not going to be an official day when everything is over and everything is open 100%. And you can see, here's what it was on Monday. Here's what it is on Tuesday. Like everything is sort of fading in. So we can't look and see like, you know, okay, the theater is open and everybody dashed out to see, you know, whatever it is. Like there is not going to be that clear delineation. And so to me, when it comes to like the movies being made, I think that's going to be the same no matter what. I think the the big difference this is going to make is is in distribution. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and also I would assume based on when things are closing, uh, sorry, when countries reopen, it might kind of, we might see a return. I mean, I saw some amazing 70s co-productions, you know, thanks to Criterion as well. Like I saw Red Sun with uh, a Western with Toshiro Mifune mm. and uh, Charles Bronson and Alan Delon. And really? uh, oh wow! Yeah, it's it was it's really cool, and it's like it's not like the best movie I ever saw, but it's really neat. And and the age of the co-production, maybe it's going to really. I mean, I know there are a lot of co-productions still because investors are just disparate now. But um, just in terms of where they're filmed and different people from different countries, that would be really interesting to see if if that happened. David, I do know we well, will I, never see tenet right yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll never feel like the right time yeah in a, bit, in a bit of spite everyone is going to come together to make sure it never sees the light of death <laughs> yeah, exactly um 
I think uh, as far industry wise, I think Tyler's probably right. The, we're already seeing the effects this is having on, on on distribution and in the VOD window. You know, Trolls World Tour like set some sort of records, and Universal said we're going to do VOD for everything. And AMC Theaters said, well, we won't show your movies, and they agreed on a like a seventeen day window. That's like uh, it's crazy. Movies are going to come out in AMC Theaters and then be on VOD two and a half weeks later. Um, but uh, uh, so I think you're. I think Tyler's right about that. But what I'm what I'm wondering about though is on the talent side, what what young filmmakers right now are currently honing skills that past generations of filmmakers didn't have to uh, or wouldn't have thought to, and and what what developments in uh, how movies are made are going to be uh, affected by people making movies uh, by themselves uh, at, at home. You know, we. Uh, uh, the the AV Club uh, uh, website is doing their annual look back at the summer of or of the year of twenty years ago. Yeah, looking at two thousand, they were talking about these movies um, like the the sort of early digital age, like Dancer in the Dark and Chuck and Buck and all these things that came out in two thousand that were like you know muddy, gross uh, DV, but uh, um, uh, represented the early uh, form of a new wave that now is what filmmaking is digital. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh so you know you think about things uh obviously like dogma 95 was happening before 2000 but you think about things like um what, what, what's the gareth who made uh godzilla i get edwards and evans mixed up i uh, think it's edwards but now okay. i don't know yeah it's, it's edwards um uh yeah he made that movie uh monsters i think mm-hmm. it's called with scoot mcnary where the head which yeah. has like massive like creature uh effects that he did like at home you, you know uh and i think that kind of thing might be uh accelerated now where we we might have uh more and more uh independently produced movies that have uh practical visual, practical or just visual effects that weren't uh yeah um uh possible or weren't explored uh on a home uh computer before i mean i hate to be that person from who's just who's just so in love with past film, you know, that it's hard for me to embrace new movies. That being said, there's no denying that 2019 was an amazing year for the big ones. But, uh, um, and that's actually something worth noting is just how good the great, I mean, I loved The Irishman, loved the Uncut Gems, Parasite, like, Mm -hmm. and and that was just sort of the the top tier stuff, um, like most visible. And, and, uh, um, but, but, it's hard. It's been very hard for me to key in in the same way. Like that movie Filmworker I mentioned uh, about uh, is is about you know a guy who was an actor and then just saw Stanley Kubrick movies and said this is cinema, this is art, like this is what I want to be part of. And he gave up his acting career basically for it. And I really, really am yearning for like that kind of experience. And part of it is because as I I have a problem where I you know, feel betrayed sometimes by like Pat filmmakers. I once thought were on the Vanguard who I like, like I feel like Wes Anderson, no offense to Wes Anderson, but he was someone whose style I was so in love with that when it's sort of, um, what'd you call it? Just uh, like was what it was, yeah. you know, um, 
I became. And then you, more... you start to see like TV commercials that are clearly like Wes Anderson inspired. It, it, yeah. it definitely doesn't feel, and that's not really his fault for making something so influential, but it does kind of take away. But not really changing his tone, you know, throughout his entire career started kind of getting to me and yet Todd Salons, I respect for the same reason, you know, so it's, it's just, um, anyway, I, I guess my point is I want to be blown away and I want to appreciate things on the level that I do and, and that I have, you know, with great past work. And like, I don't know, I, it's probably me, but I don't know. Do you guys have that feeling? You're, you're all pretty immersed in, in new movies. I know David and Tyler, you are for sure. No, I think I, I, uh, uh, I get very excited about, uh, about new, n- new movies. My sort of, uh, um, corny answer whenever someone says what's the best movie year i always say something like hopefully next year like that's that's kind of and that is uh corny and obnoxious and not what people are looking for but it is kind i like of my, it i take it <laughs> um that's that's kind of how i tend to to think about things um i i have made in, in the past five years or so i have made more of an attempt to make sure i don't stop watching old movies uh because i yeah. um still do end up liking old movies more more of the time and part of it yeah. is, is because they're old like i think um a, a bad movie that came out 50 years ago is more worthwhile than a bad movie that came out yesterday because it even if it's a bad movie it still exists as a sort of like artifact or a window yeah so. yeah I, I mean movies are t- whether they're trying to be or not they're they're a snapshot of the time um even if it's just oh, this is how this filmmaker thought uh, portraying this race or whatever yeah, is, sure. is like. Um, so it, it could be that. But um, yeah, I, the one thing that I've, that I've thought is like, oh, if Battleship Pretension ever ended, I would be very sad. But you know what? At least I'd be able to catch up on some movies. I know that sounds weird because I wind up seeing... I mean, obviously it'd be, it'd be a mixed bag. I wind up seeing like some new movies that I frankly have no interest in because I want to stay current because I do this podcast and I feel like I should stay current. Um, yeah. And I do that at the expense of seeing an older movie. Um, and then if I, if I do watch an older film, I feel like, Oh, that's, that's two hours I could have spent being part of the conversation about, you know, Palm Springs or, or something like that. Which um, I watched some of. Okay. <laughs> okay. That that's the thing is I've seen some of that. I've seen some of Bernadette, you know, mm-hmm. the Bernadette movie there. Yeah. Uh, by uh, Linklater and um I it's been hard for me to key into these ones, you know, uh because but but it's weird like if I were in the 70s and and uh, you know, Jeremy, I'd like you to make that me- noise if you don't mind. Doodle doo doodle doo. Like I'm in the 70s now. <laughs> anyway if i were in the yeah, 70s like the, like, yeah. uh, yes thanks uh you know it's really uh ted and mary bob and alice you know how many mm-hmm. movies like that are there how many movies are there about these sort of you know white uh swinging people like kind of just like doing nothing that matters you know together like i i think that sometimes there is a lot of stock that to be that we put in in just things from the past, which will happen and has happened to things from 10 years ago, five years ago. And, uh, 
it's just that uh, I don't I don't even remember what my initial point was here, but I I would like to say I, uh, you guys are sponsored by Tweaked Audio. <laughs> well, that's a good. We should actually because I do have uh, I want your thoughts, uh, Jeremy. But we are I do have kind of a hard out. So uh, yeah. before we get too much into the depths, and I end up between the devil and the deep blue sea, we should maybe cruise to the end and wave sure. goodbye. Um, Jeremy, did you have any final now, thoughts? You here's the thing. I don't, I, <laughs> David, I don't know if I have the authority to do this, but you're fired. <laughs> uh, uh, no, you, uh, you don't. Two things. I just realized Richard Linklater made Bernie and Bernadette. And I, didn't know what to make of that I never anyway. thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. Um, Bernie also, was good. Thinking, I liked Bernie. I love Bernie. Jack yeah. Black. Also the, uh, the thing about, I don't know what point this is making, but the, the whole thing of what COVID movies will be and, you know, maybe homemade special effects and these things. I'm also thinking of just, and I wish I had done this before, but so many movies I love that could have been COVID movies. Or if you thought what will work best in this environment, like my dinner with Andre, where you're just sitting there <laughs> saying, describing a cool movie. That yeah. You cannot currently make. Oh my God. Was like, big night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Babette's feast. I mean, yeah. there is What's like going on out there. Tempopo. <laughs> like these are all. Uh, that reminds me. I am um, on TCM earlier this year, uh, earlier, earlier this pandemic uh i saw the uh jezebel the the betty davis movie from 1930 whatever um which takes place in the middle of an actual yellow fever outbreak in new orleans like it's a whole part of the story that people are like they have to close the theaters and people are like you know covering their face whenever they go outside um wow. it's it's weird the number of movies that the, the there's been other things like that that have popped up uh that, that have been accidentally relevant that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I I've seen that too. Uh, you know, even my beautiful laundrette had this sort of, um, I don't know, it, it felt very current in its way. It had like sort of elements of socialism, elements of that uh, divide that uh, Tyler was talking about earlier. And I was actually just uh, thinking of um, a movie with da David Lean directed uh, of a, um, or no, it was a George Stevens movie that I can't remember the name of for the life of me. Um, and it was, uh, from 1944 and it, it was like sort of, um, socialism and, and independent women and, and misunderstandings. Like it was, it's amazing seeing these things that, that still resonate. And like, that's what I want from, from current movies. And I have seen that, like, I would put those movies I mentioned from 2019, you know, in the same category as a great movie I saw from the seventies. I mean, it's just that I, I want more. Film is my drug. Yeah. You know, um, one, one thing that occurred to me is this is not film industry related, but it is. it definitely falls in line with what I do. I would not be surprised if after this is all over, if there, I, w I wouldn't be surprised if there is a decline in film school enrollment. Um, especially when it comes, maybe not with production, but certainly like in, in my area, which is like film history, film aesthetics, that sort of thing. Um, everything being moved to this, to people sitting in front of their computer, certainly like, I mean, uh, classes start for me uh, next week and I'm just going to be sitting here and all my students are going to be sitting in front of their computer. And I do genuinely feel like students will realize that 
oh, I don't need to go. Like film school might not be a, need, a necessary thing for me anymore. I can just learn what I need to learn online, uh, whether it be a, as part of an official like institution or there are so many like, f you know, film classes and film resources on YouTube and podcasts and that sort of thing. Um, and then I have, and then I have uh, a phone or uh, an iPad or my own microphone. I really don't need this anymore. And so I'm really interested to see what the impact will be on like the world of film education when this is all over, like in the same way that uh, people have said, and I know that like David, you've said that like so many people came to realize like, wow, I really don't need to go into the office. Like that is not an actual necessity. And so I'm interested in, in a larger sense, like how many industries will be impacted once people don't necessarily need to physically be somewhere. And I think it's the same with, you know, why would somebody pay to go to a film school when they can get certainly not the exact same kind of education, but a similar one uh, online. Well, the, 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 the thing they'll miss out on is having to watch their classmates shitty projects, which I feel like is <laughs> that's a rite true. of passage for film school students. Oh boy. Yeah, that's true. Where it's just like, they're like, where am I going to go to see somebody sitting in the fetal position in a bathtub? I mean, let's uh, face it. Oliver Stone is going to need money really soon. And he's probably going to get some people to enroll in his film sure, classes. Absolutely. I, I think I, th I really hope not that you're wrong exactly, but I do think like, as long as analysis, different critical voices, different takes on things is being, you know, ingested. Like I didn't go to film school. I didn't go to university particularly, but I did grow up with a lot of film literature and film yeah. around me, you know? And, and I think, you know, immersing yourself however you can yeah. is, is pretty much the way to go, you know? And maybe film school isn't that, maybe it is that, but I want you to work. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> well, seriously, I do. I am up against it. I have to get out of here. Um, so uh, thank you for uh, for joining us uh, from Toronto, uh, Nick and Jeremy. Pleasure. Um, uh, real quick, you can find us. Pleasure at Cruise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. Uh, this week, I should have posted a review of Spree by the time you're hearing this. Um, that's available at battleshipretention.com. You can email us at david at battleshipretension.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at davypretension. Follow Tyler at tylerpretension. Tyler, do you have anything you want to plug real quick? Yeah, I got a couple of things. One is over more than one lesson. Um, by the time you're hearing this, there's an episode in which I uh, interview uh, Swiss filmmaker uh, Andreas Kranzler, um, and that's a, that's a fun conversation. Uh, but then also, I was recently on Jim Rohner's podcast, The Cast of Cthulhu, talking about, speaking of uh, old video games, uh, talking about Quest for Glory, Shadows of Darkness, which was a, a Sierra game uh, that incorporated uh, Lovecraftian uh, concepts. Roberta, Williams, shout out to Roberta. There you go. Now we're talking. That's exciting. California um, native. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm also on an upcoming episode of The Cast of Cthulhu where we talked about uh, Stuart Gordon's episode from season one of Masters of Horror, Dreams in the Witch House, based on H.P. Lovecraft's Dreams in the Witch House. Um, so, yeah, check that out. Um, Nick, where can people find you on the uh, internet? At the Flans, you can that, uh, and also you can listen to my podcast, uh, Nick Flanagan Weekly. Thank you uh, for the uh, – <laughs> you sort of 
foreshadowed it, Tyler. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a podcast I do all the time. I'd love it if people listened. And Jeremy, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at JW Pencil and Pad, uh, where I follow the Flans. And also, I'm really leaning hard into a new impression of Stellan Skarsgård. So follow that as it <laughs> Is that the father? Is that the guy's dad? Yes, that's the father. I saw the funniest interview with him in that. I think it was in that film worker documentary. Oh, my God. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for having us, guys. This yes. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for being here and helping really us nice uh, celebrate 700 episodes. Congrats. Absolutely. We Thank will you. have you on again in episode 1400. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a reason to live. And oh uh, listeners, thank you for listening for 700 weeks. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.